Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, joined as I often am by my wonderful colleagues and collaborators, Cassidy Williams, C.R. Ford, and Matt Kiernander. Hello. Hi. Full home team episode. Hey, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Good. I'm glad to hear I'm it. still waiting for you to start that off with collaborators and friends, Ben. I'm a little bit offended. <laughs> you know, I try not friend, to mix ben. business and uh, personal, but uh, <laughs> I consider everyone on this podcast to be a friend. It certainly okay, is. A t- good. I treasure all the podcast time. <laughs> I always get some laughs. I feel good afterwards. It's an emotionally important component of my work-life balance. So. so we've got some fun news hits today, as well as some art, some, some code and some art and some AI. Let's kick things off with a piece I saw from Developer Pit Stop. How long do software engineers stay at a job? <laughs> I shouldn't can, laugh. You shouldn't uh. laugh. We can dig into some folks' personal experience in a second. Not surprisingly, software engineers stay about half as long as your average worker in any particular industry. Why do we think this is? And from personal experience and folks who have done this, what are the benefits and the drawbacks of moving around so much? So I think. First of all, it is very much in the nature of tech to change in general. And Mm. so people tend to be willing to change because they're following new tech trends and stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think in a lot of industries, if you don't stay at a place for a long time, you're kind of punished for it. And as a result, a lot of workers get exploited in different industries. And in tech, we are very privileged to not have that as a problem where People need tech workers and they don't really mind if you've only been at places for a year and a half, two years at most places because they because they need your skills and they're they're willing to compensate you for it. And so I think it's a good thing. And I think it's something that in general, and granted, I'm saying this with extreme bias because I am someone who has <laughs> jumped around <laughs> quite a bit in my had career. Had a few jobs since you and I yeah. started podcasting together. I've, yeah, had, a, a I've had a handful, but Because I've had a handful, I've had such a good variety of experience and I've been able to move up in my career much faster where it was actually a common joke when I worked at Amazon that, oh, the fastest way to get promoted is to actually leave and come back or the Mm -hmm. fastest way to get a raise is to actually just go somewhere else and, and join the company again. And that's such a common thing where why wouldn't you change if you want to move up financially or get a promotion? Yeah. When you say, though, in other industries punished, you mean like if you worked in another industry, I don't know specifically, but finance, law, academia, and they saw you were taking a new job every two years, they'd be like, something's wrong with this person, or this isn't something I like to see on a resume, whereas in tech, it's pretty normal. Right. It's pretty normal. Granted, if it's just a ton of like three to nine month stints, that doesn't look great, I will say. Right. like you, You're going to need some time to ramp up at a given job. But if you generally stay at a place more than a year, chances are you've been able to accomplish something meaningful and you leave with a good reason. I think one of the reasons maybe why we see so much, as, as well as tech changing as well, is that tech work is remote, so the opportunities are quite a lot more than maybe some industries that don't have the remote flexibility. And I think the breadth of compensation available to a lot of people, you can be doing a dev job that's 60, 70, 80K, and then the next year get one that's maybe 300,000 in total compensation if you're working within the States and you're 
jumping to a FAing thing. So I think given how broad the compensation ranges are, it's very much incentivized to be continually hunting for that kind of next banner up because it is very, very tangible. Yeah, I think in general, comparatively, and when I say comparatively, I mean like compared to other industries, tech workers are very empowered. And I know like working in tech, you might think the opposite. And I'm not saying that the tech industry doesn't have any issues because it does. And I'll be the first to admit that. It has plenty. (laughs) Yes. But I think that we're empowered in that we have skills that are very in demand, that are highly compensated. And a lot of tech workers are aware of this and they use that to their advantage. So when you know that like with a year, year and a half, two years of experience, you can go somewhere else and get a higher pay, better title. Why wouldn't you make that move? So I think that's one of the, in general, kind of like why people tend to jump around a lot. That's what it looks like. And then I think too, like even now, it seems like just there's a shift in how people think about work and like loyalty to the job. And I think more people are focused on instead of like, oh, being loyal to the company, it's more like I want to increase my own personal wealth. So with that goal in mind, it's much easier to be a little like impersonal when it comes to like attachment to your team, attachment to the company you work for and like focus more on yourself. And that sounds bad, but I think in general for the individual tech worker, it's a good thing. I think it's something that's important to note in general because workers are generally exploited a lot when they can be because it's down to the profits for the company. And I was talking to a bunch of founders recently and a person brought up the subject of, should I be worried if some of the really good engineers coming my way have only really been at their previous roles for like two years max? And it was an interesting discussion because almost everybody said, no, this isn't a problem because people don't leave companies just because. They almost always leave for a reason. And so if you, as a manager, as a business owner, anything, an employer, if you are creating an environment where someone is compensated fairly, where someone is learning and where it's just a good culture that generally aligns with their values, they're not going to leave. Why leave if it's if it's doing good by the employee? But if you are missing something and they're not being fulfilled in one of those categories, then that's just what happens. I'm curious, Ben, Sura, Cassidy, if you've hired anyone before and you've been looking through CVs and you see somebody has jumped around a, a lot, kind of like I'm curious as to where your margin of error is, I guess, in like evaluating a candidate in terms of like if they've been maybe say, for example, three or four one-year stints at a company, is that a no-go? Or like, are you looking for variation between maybe one to three years? If you see with each progression that they're moving to a higher role with more responsibilities, then I think you can tell that they are graduate, they're moving up, you know, they did really well at a certain company, people are talking about them, or they've had public projects, and then they go from, you know, to one thing to managing something bigger or taking on a bigger role. So I wouldn't, you know, mind seeing that. And then the other one, there is a time boundary in some people's head, nine months to a year, and anything less than that, it's almost like you want to check the references, you want to say like, okay, like what happened here? Is there a good explanation for this? You know, was there a particular reason you left so quickly? And sometimes the person has a good answer. And sometimes, you know, I think that's an area of concern, at least worth exploring. Yeah, I think very similar to Ben, whenever I've looked at that, again, if it's less than like six months at each place, I'm like, hmm, is this because you chose this or there's something else in there? Because 
Unfortunately, that has been something where I've asked someone, and it turns out they had some beliefs that did not align with a lot of people. And and it's it's something that they brought into the workplace and it ended up making people uncomfortable. So you you do have to watch out for that kind of thing to make sure that, that they can be professional in the workplace. At the same time, if they generally are around a year at most places, and like Ben said, they move up almost every single time in their role, then that means that they changed for a reason. It's a career opportunity that they wanted to pursue. And you can always ask and yeah. you get some pretty honest answers when you ask them. Yeah. I'm rarely on the interviewee side of things. I've only actually interviewed someone once ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I actually said that wrong. I said interviewee. I meant interviewer. But anyway, right. from the interviewee perspective, I'm the person who has like, if you look at my my resume, it's going to look a little wonky because when I first started out in tech, I did a lot of contract work. So mm-hmm. a lot of three, four, six month stints at different places and things like that. So I think it is like worthwhile to like ask because there could be like a lot of reasons behind it. I, I had an interview once. It was like the last interview in the process. This person was like VP of product, I think. And the last thing they asked was like, okay, like one thing I'm kind of wondering about is like why you jumped around so much pretty much. Right. And I explained to them like, oh, that was contract work. So I really appreciated her asking me that instead of like totally. assuming that like I was problematic or something like that. So yeah, definitely ask if in doubt. Yeah. And I think another thing that I've noticed in, in doing interviews as the interviewer is I often say like, what in particular, you know, interested you about this role? And often the answer is, is in my mind, kind of, kind of generic, not that there's a problem with that, but like, it doesn't seem like it's anything beyond like, this seems really attractive. And, you know, I saw the job posting, whereas occasionally somebody will say something like, well, I was working at a really big company and now I would like to be on a smaller team and get that opportunity to grow with the team as a, you know, I was on a team of 500, I'd like to work on a team of 50. And I find that really compelling from the interviewer perspective, because it's like, they have a a real personal motivation that goes beyond just like more title, more money, more something else. Like there's something sort of tangible there. So that's a good question to ask because that basically gives them a chance to kind of like address the pain points they were having in their previous company and really iron in on why they want to join that. If it's, they want to work with a smaller company or the experience they were getting there, they didn't have the growth opportunities, whatever that might be, new technology shifting from AI to Fund development, back-end development, whatever it might be. It's a good question. And you kind of get that from questions they might ask you as well as an interviewer. Sometimes when I'm interviewing someone where I say, okay, why are you interested in this switch and stuff? You get a good answer. But then they'll ask me questions like, so when was the last person fired at your company and why was it? Or mm. like, what is the retention like on your team? Do people leave pretty often or what? And, and like, you can tell from those questions, which things they might be worried about and what types of cultures they might be trying to get away from. That's a tough question. It was the last person fired at your company, you know, to be honest about that. I mean, obviously you have to protect anonymity, but that's a challenging question. I, <laughs> I feel glad I haven't gotten it yet. I also understand why <laughs> it uh, would be a good question to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know how I would deal with it. One of my friends... He's a technical recruiter. And one of his favorite questions to ask is, why shouldn't I work here? Yeah, that's a good one. He's got some pretty interesting answers from that one. And he he can tell based on how honest they are, kind of like whether or not they're actually 
telling the genuine, like, these are the things I want to improve about the company versus just the kind of bog standard, like, oh, I wasn't prepared for this. If you hate work-life balance, don't, don't, (laughs) we don't want you here. My husband's favorite question to ask is if you had a magic wand and could change one thing about this company, what would you change? And it's really Mm -hmm. interesting to see what different interviewers say, especially if the answer is consistent across all the interviewers or if it's a bunch of different things that everybody says. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Write these down. (laughs) No one enjoys building their own authentication. It's messy, takes ages, and requires whole teams to keep on top of it. So let Auth0 by Okta take care of it for you. Visit developer.auth0.com slash stack and let them know the podcast sent you. I want to move on to another news story that I saw, which to me kind of stood out as an area where the folks writing it were not as familiar, or maybe they were familiar, but sort of like intentionally a little bit ignorant of what is very common practice within a tech company. So it was about LinkedIn running what they called social experiments and how that this might have disadvantaged some job seekers over over others. But when I read it, you know, what I saw was sort of the classic tech company A-B testing, which is like, we're trying a new button here. Like we're recommending this today and this tomorrow and not doing it in a way that targeted any specific group of users, just, you know, trying to see what optimized for everybody and so not sort of malicious in my mind. And so I guess that opens up the question of like, you know, is this just standard practice being misinterpreted? And like, is this kind of a little bit of, you know, like overreaction? Or when you get to the level of a LinkedIn where, you know, you do have a big impact on people's careers, maybe you have to rethink A-B testing and like, or at least alert people in some way, you know, to what's going on. I kind of went back and forth as I thought this through. I feel like this is such a layered issue, especially for a company like LinkedIn, where they're not like, dealing with something like trivial they're talk like we're talking about like people's careers right and yeah. so this is kind of where i think tech and ethics cross paths in a way that's really important and sometimes if you're not familiar with both you might not be aware of the effects on either side depending on what decision you make so all that to say i wonder if they discussed and or anticipated the effect this could have if it actually did affect some candidates meaning like giving some users this feature and not giving other users this feature means that the other group does not get as many opportunities to get hired because of the way it affects the algorithm etc etc i wonder if they anticipated that or discussed that and yeah it's hard to tell when you don't have like any kind of internal intel but that's what I wonder when I hear about situations right, like this. Right, right. Seeing this, it sounded like it was an A-B test where people were just like, wait a minute, no, because they don't really realize the standard practice. I admit that that, that was the perspective that I got when I was reading the article. That being said, a lot of times these studies have balances built in so that people don't miss out on features. And okay. I don't know if that's what happened with this study, but a lot of times when I see it, it's just like, okay, well, if only... X number of users are going to get this sale at this point. We want to make sure that they get the sale at a later point so that way it's balanced or something, depending on what the product is, what the feature is. And so there might be an initial bias in figuring out, is this useful? Because you you need to do some kind of experiment to figure out if something's useful, but then you balance it out later. And I don't know if that's what they did here, but I think that's something that is 
a very easy remedy. And Cassie, to your point, like, let's say there was no, they didn't do A-B testing, right? Like, the way the system is set up might be biased from the beginning. Like, you know, like you have to do A-B testing is the process of learning, you know, how your site is working and evolving and how it's, you know, impacting different users. You have to do that. I, I want to say probably somewhere buried in the terms of service. They told people, you know, we'll, be run, we'll occasionally be running experiments or changing the site or, you know, like I, I guarantee that's that's in there somewhere. But right, I think back to Sierra's point, like what do we owe users, you know, in terms of disclosure? Or how do we make them aware that this is happening? An important question and a difficult one because it's like LinkedIn or whoever doesn't really know until they run the experiments what the impact is going to be, you know, yeah. so they can't necessarily tell you like, do you want to opt in? Do you want to opt out? I guess the best thing to do would be to say like, do you want to, do you mind opting into research and working with that research right. group, right? Like that would probably be the best way. But, you know, at LinkedIn scale, you want to you want to see things for all of your users and the number of users who would opt into research might not be significant enough. So, yeah, I also feel like the title calling it like a social experiment is kind of like, that's kind of heavy. He's <laughs> journalists. I think that kind of makes it sound like something that it's not. Like A-B right. testing is very typical. I do think like, I do think it's an important discussion to have about like ethics and A-B testing and how you can make sure that it's fair for the users and yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. I think that's an important conversation, but I wouldn't equate A-B testing to a social experiment per se. I think those are two very different things, but I also don't know if the regular, like the normal, typical New York Times reader, like knows what A-B testing is, if they would like read the article if it said like that's A-B testing because it's sort of like linkedin ran a b test <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. linkedin read a b test some people may have been negatively impacted like nobody's gonna read that story right. so i understand yeah. and that's the thing based on what it sounded like it was less some people may be negatively impacted it's more some people might be positively impacted if they were interested in the experiment in the first place because they have to make design decisions based on the experiments, you know, this was an article that was not written for tech people to read. <laughs> the way it's kind of written is it's just, for example, the sentence here, tech giants like LinkedIn. It's kind of painting a brush over all of these tech giants that they're yeah. all doing this. Oh my God, did you know they do A-B testing? And it's, we've probably done A-B testing at some stage in our life without even realizing it. If you buy two <laughs> cookies because you want to figure out which one's better, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of A-B testing. Of course, yeah. People saw different headlines on the stories I published. Can you believe it? People got a blue <laughs> button versus a green button. Yeah, exactly. I remember reading an article similar to this that was like, we signed up for X social media platform and within days it was like, knew exactly what we wanted. And I was like, yeah, like that's the whole game. Like you got it. You got it just right. I was looking into Launch Darkly. They they basically are feature flags as a service or A-B tests as a service where you can put mm-hmm. in flags for any sort of features and stuff. And this is such a prevalent thing. First of all, they exist, but also they actually toggle peaks of 20 trillion feature flags hit a day, which is an absurd number. And so this is something where if maybe the general population knew that this is how this kind of testing and the algorithms and everything worked, maybe there'd be less panic about it. But this this definitely painted it as if like big tech is experimenting on you. Yeah, I I think (laughs) this also highlights an issue, not an issue, but like a thing that I've noticed just in general is that although 
our lives are like highly integrated with technology and these big tech companies, tech literacy is not very, it's not at that same level, just with the general population. And I feel like at this point, that might be something that we should think about a little bit because Mm -hmm. it's obvious in the way that people talk about like the algorithm and social experiments and things like that. And like, they kind of like make it seem like it's scary and bad. And like, although there are very bad things that big tech companies are doing, I do think if people had more literacy around things like A-B testing and like what AI and machine learning actually are and like things like that, it would help them to be better informed so that things like this don't sound as dramatic and scary as they are, which is like something I think about a lot because especially like for future generations, we're just going to be using technology more and more and more. And I just noticed that a lot of people just don't know certain things that for us just seem like obvious, but they have no idea, which I think like that's interesting. And I think maybe that's something we should think about fixing. Yeah. And it's, it's the kind of thing where like, for example, if you drive a car, you have to know some basic details about your car. And like when the certain light goes on, you know, this has to be fixed when this or that happens, you have to fix that or, or do whatever, make your turn signal. There there's things you learn to operate a car and keep it running, keep it fixed and everything. We don't really have that as a standard practice for computers. It's just something that you use. And for better or for worse, user researchers are great and make things much easier for users. That way they don't have to care about a lot of things. But at the same time, it's almost making like a laziness about these tools that make people who aren't tech savvy susceptible to Mm. biases and things that big tech wants you to have. And the thing is, I feel like even people who are tech savvy still don't really know. Like they could be like an expert at using an iPhone, know all the features, but like when it comes to actual, like for us, basic terminology, they have no clue. Like the episode we did some months ago about how current CS students are not familiar with like how directories work because they don't know (laughs) about the file system. Like that's a huge issue of people just not knowing like some of the things that are basic to us because they just don't know. And like the, like you mentioned, like user researchers and things like that are making everything so simple and easy that like, like maybe when computers were first a thing or like in the early days of the internet, these things were like normal things for you to know because it took a lot more like, effort now yeah, everything right. is so easy you just don't have you don't even think about it so when you hear about like a social experiment you're like scared <laughs> out of your mind when it's just an a b test you know for sure yeah, that's exactly. my big brain take on this <laughs> it's, brain it's very real and and i mean <laughs> i think it's also because young people kind of like what you said they they have a lot to learn about like why systems are the way they are because of the legacy behind them but there's there's a bunch of older people who didn't grow up with technology who then are afraid because it's so new and, and it's all been in their lifetime and, and you don't know which things are going to stick around, which things might go away. And I can't tell you how many times like my mom has called me or, or a relative has called me in a panic because they're like, this pop-up happened or, or the, this, this email changed or something and they don't I know what to do to and they're afraid. <laughs> yeah, and you you have to be just like, it's okay. It's not yeah. the end of the world. You just close it. You just trash it. See the little X there, you know? Yeah, just click it. (laughs) Is it kind of scary that you said a phrase, people who didn't grow up with technology, that is not something we're going to be able to mention probably for any future generations. 
I have this super, super hot take, but I feel like the only people who, the only generation that's like actually technically savvy, like for real, for real, are millennials. I feel like Gen Z lost that. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like everyone before millennials doesn't know how to use a computer or a phone. And like for Gen Z, everything has been so easy that they just don't know a lot of terminology. Right. So that's my general take on this whole thing. I actually think about this so much because I'm like the Gen Z rep here and I'm like we're doomed (laughs) like nobody knows anything about technology it's over for us I read something recently and I wish I could recall where I read it but it was an article basically saying how Gen Z is just as susceptible to misinformation as like boomer generations because just like what you said everything has been kind of handed to them as this technology that already exists Mm. and Kind of like what you said, the millennials dealt with a little bit of both. Yeah, right. had to do a lot right. of a learning at, and growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like my first introduction to computers was, you know, maybe a little bit at home, but mostly in a computer science, you know, computer class at school. That's very different than my kids who were like handed an iPad or an iPhone when they were three because we were at <laughs> dinner and I needed them to be quiet. You know, right. <laughs> to Cassidy's point and, and Ben's point as well, the millennials grew up breaking things unintentionally like growing yeah. up with kind of like the early computers you are kind of scared to do some stuff because you might really mess some things up um whereas there's a lot some more things really badly yeah <laughs> so I, I think kind of growing up with that attitude where you're always a little bit cautious around what you're doing a lot of gen z you know it's uh, a lot of the guardrails have been put in place there are still more mm-hmm. guardrails that need to go up but that kind of attitude and mindset towards building and uh, being a little bit cautious around the things that we do, I think is still is a good thing to have. Speaking yeah. of Gen Z and millennials, something that stands the test of time, Pokemon <laughs> is back yeah. in a new form. It was, it came out, I think before I was really aware of it. And then it became big back when I was in high school. Cause it, it got like released in America. Then my kids loved it. The, you know, Pokemon Go is a phenomenon. So it just, it can, and, and I have a local game shop near me and they have Pokemon Nights and there's like 40 people there playing wow, Pokemon cool. cards. So like, mm. you know, that's all still gone, which is pretty sweet. But whoever dropped a link in here, I would love to hear a little bit more about it. This is AI image generation, which is my new favorite thing, making Pokemon. Do I have that right? Yes. Twas I who dropped that link in. And honestly, the, the reason I thought this was very, very cool is because you could, there's a link in the tweet and it'll be in the show notes below. So they're using stable diffusion and they were running, they weren't getting the right results with making AI generated Pokemon with the current data set that they had. So they introduced their own Pokemon data set to help improve the algorithm. Mm. And in the tweet, you can actually kind of see as it progresses and it learns how these not Pokemon morph into Pokemon and more Pokemon like creations. I thought like it was a really cool visual representation of how, how this kind of AI image generation works. But the wrapper of it is you can make AI Pokemon with prompts now, which is pretty Mm. cool. They were, they were doing Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin and you can do a whole (laughs) bunch of other things as well. I thought it was quite funny. I want to see you throw your favorite ones in the show notes then. So interesting. I granted, I now work at an AI company that generates things, not art, but other stuff. And so this kind of stuff interests me already. But the fact that they went in this direction of training a model in the Pokemon direction, I think is so fun. And mm. it'll be interesting to see like if fan art comes out of it or or if people end up rallying to say this should be in the next games or anything like that. 
they should definitely do a branded branded collaboration where like the most popular AI generated one somehow gets into the next edition. That would be really sweet. Oh, that's cool. That's a good idea, Ben. Whoa. Ben, the idea, I work in marketing. Man. Don't look at me. I, <laughs> director of marketing over here. Just an idea. I have a story about Pokemon spanning generations from this past weekend. I was at church listening to the announcements, was kind of bored. And I was sitting next to this child who was like three, maybe. And she was just kind of quiet doing her own thing. And I was just like, okay, she doesn't know what Pokemon is. And I was I was playing Pokemon Go on my phone, not paying attention to what's happening. She looks over and she starts shouting in front of everybody there. She's playing Pokemon Go. She's battling. She's going <laughs> to oh, win. I was like, wow. kid, be cool, wow, please. And I, I was just called out in front of everybody. And it was very embarrassing. <laughs> That's hilarious. Pokemon is loved by all. That feels like a scene from The Simpsons or something. <laughs> I'm sure the two of you will reconcile at the end. All right, everybody. Well, I want to thank the whole home team for showing up. As always, it is a true delight to chat with y'all. This episode will probably air after Stack Overflow's Flow State Conference. But if you didn't get to come in New York City or attend remotely, we will be throwing up some videos of the talks and some breakdowns of the different events we had. So yeah, I really hope you can check those out. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, and then we can hop over to our outro. Sound good, y'all? Sounds perfect. All righty. Awarded two days ago to unique username. Yeah, very meta. How can I print to the console using JavaScript? Great question. In fact, your answer was so good, you got a lifeboat badge. Helped 140,000 people. Mm. Wow. What a great Is question. Is the answer just console.log? You have to go to the show notes and find out, Matt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I can't tell you. But uh, yeah, we appreciate when people come on and answer even the simplest questions because in the end, you end up helping out a ton of folks. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always hit us up, podcast at Stack Overflow by email with questions or suggestions. And if you like the show, leave us a, a rating and a review. It really helps. My name is Ciora Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Off Zero by Okta. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is at Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. I'm Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm CTO at Contenda. And I'm Matt Kinander. I am a developer advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. Wonderful. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for hanging out. And everybody who listened, we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.